Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello. So this week, we're discussing Charlie Kaufman's trippy new film, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, starring Jesse Buckley as a young woman traveling with her boyfriend, Jake, played by Jesse Plemons, to visit his parents in the countryside amidst a blizzard. Uh, this film also stars Tony Collette and David Thewlis as uh, Jesse Plemons' parents, and it has received a lot of attention because it is one of the few really artsy films that has been released in quarantine as of late. It's interesting. I didn't love it, but I was really appreciative to have it to get to watch and think about. Um, and it's one of the few new releases we're talking about on this podcast in a while. So that's exciting. What is your relationship with Charlie Kaufman, Gabia? Why don't we start out? there. Okay, so I have not seen any of the three movies that he's directed um, but I feel like his most famous movies are the ones that he wrote the movies I've seen by him are Being John Malkovich and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, so like the two really famous mainstream ones that he wrote, I have not written, read any of his books, I have not listened to his audio plays so I have a limited knowledge of his work but I am obviously very familiar with him as a concept. <laughs> yes. Uh, the other major screenplay that he wrote that was also nominated for an Oscar, I think all three of the big screenplays of his in the sort of late 90s and early aughts were nominated for original screenplay at the Oscars, um, was Adaptation, which is a favorite of mine. I think that's probably the best screenplay of his as like a screenwriting exercise. Um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is probably the best of those films like as a film but I think that's a much more kind of uh, generous and humane movie and I suspect that the director Michel Gondry had a lot of influence on that the original screenplay I think was a bit more harsh and cynical and um, adaptation feels like a really pure expression of Kaufman's sort of obsessions and interests for those who are not familiar it is about Charlie Kaufman, the screenwriter, played by Nicolas Cage, who has the assignment to adapt Susan Orlean's book, The Orchid Thief, which was a thing that happened to him in real life. And he was like, I can't do this. I have writer's block. And the screenplay he wound up writing about the book was about him having writer's block writing this screenplay. And he invented a twin for himself named Donnie, who is also played by Nicolas Cage. And there's this Meryl Streep plays Susan Orlean, and it turns into this like ridiculous but amazing sort of noir thing where like she's a drug runner and like Susan Orlean is an incredibly respected journalist who writes for the New Yorker and she's depicted in this movie as like being addicted to like orchid like cocaine I mean it's it's crazy 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 that's the one I want to see the most of his it's it's amazing it's the best example I can think of of a like twins being played by the same actor in a movie and you're just like yes I believe that this, these are two people. If Nicolas Cage announced today that he was already twins, I, <laughs> you know, it's just one of the explanations we can have for Nick Cage. <laughs> it's true. It's true. But that film has a lot of obviously like self-referential stuff. Like the main character literally is Charlie Kaufman in quotes. There's a lot of stuff about Hollywood, which he's obsessed with and sort of stuff about like women being slightly impenetrable to him, which is also a theme of Eternal Sunshine, obviously, although I think it's handled very well in that movie. The Clementine character played by Kate Winslet in Eternal Sunshine is kind of a critique of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl type at the beginning of that trend, right? He finds her kind of mystifying and is entranced by her oddness, but I think that character is really well done in that she feels really distinct as a person and is like, I'm 
please stop fetishizing me. But I do think Kaufman has a tendency in some of his stuff to be sort of bamboozled and mystified by women in a way that can feel a little bit fetishy. I did not see the film Anomaliso, which was his last movie, which was stop motion animation, but I have heard that it's quite sexist. Again, I haven't watched it, so I don't know. But I was really curious about this movie because the main character is woman, which is unusual for him. It's adapted from a novel by Ian Reid, which was published in 2016. It seems like a very loose adaptation, which makes sense given his prior history of adapting a book and turning it into a movie about himself. But I do think a lot of the voiceover in the film comes directly from the book based on what I have read, but I haven't read the novel, so I can't say that directly. But I think the most successful thing about this movie to me is that central character played by Jesse Buckley and the depiction in the movie of just like bad boyfriends slash men and iconically like, iconically bad boyfriend oh. and it's like to the, to the point where when he's like initially announced and she's sort of saying yeah we have this unique connection we have this great relationship i'm like even in this first 10 minute conversation i can tell that you don't <laughs> well and then she immediately goes into being like yeah i think i'm going to break up with him i mean the title yeah. i'm thinking of ending things that's what i mean well obviously double meaning but yeah it's about yeah. <laughs> that she's thinking of ending things with him, right? Like, because she thinks he's a nice guy, but she's clearly not going to go anywhere. So, like, why bother continuing this? But is, isn't it kind of human nature to just let things go along as opposed to having a sort of difficult conversation? I think the voiceover works really, really well in this movie, especially in the first half. In general, I think the first half of this movie is fantastic and the second half is not. But the voiceover... I generally find voiceover annoying and I thought it worked really well in this movie because it really feels like her actual thoughts. Yeah, it feels like her thoughts and it also feels it's really interacting with the story because there's all these points where she'll be in the middle of a thought and then he'll interrupt it with something he's saying and it's simultaneously just really annoying because he's not understanding any of the like cues she's giving. Like she's clearly sick of what he's saying and doesn't want to listen to like another conversation about some essay collection he's read or whatever. But also kind of by about halfway through, I was like, is he reading her mind? <laughs> oh, see, I was like the second he interrupted her the first time, I was like, something weird is going on. Like this- I mean, I definitely thought something weird was going on. Her personality keeps rebooting, which is sort of, I mean, we'll talk about proper spoilers towards the end of the podcast, but like, fairly or early on in the film you know you've got this couple who are taking a very long car journey to meet his parents in a very remote area it's in the middle of a blizzard and the first section is just this very long extended conversation between them in the car that's very kind of unnerving and weird but you know we learn a little bit about her if not very much at all about him she's studying like rabies she's an academic and then like a few scenes later she's a poet and he asks for her to like recite this really long depressing poem she was poem she's written and then once they reach the house and she's kind of talking about herself there she's got like a different but equally very intellectually impressive job so like she's a painter and she's a film critic and all this stuff so it's like it's like her kind of basic traits are being rebooted and she kind of roughly has the same personality throughout and I think obviously Jessie Buckley who is like an amazing actress who's getting a ton of critical attention over the past couple of years great in this role she really kind of brings it together but sort of the point that you get pretty early on in the film is that this person is like in a constant state of flux and I definitely got the impression kind of within the first half I was just like is he just kind of rebooting different versions of like his ideal intellectual women Yeah, I mean, it's obvious from very early on that you're not dealing with, like, a stable reality 
which makes sense in a Charlie Kaufman movie. Like, he's always doing something a bit odd. And her name also changes. They keep referring yeah. to her by different names. She has these different jobs, which roughly break down into something in the arts or some kind of science research. Some, like, really yeah. hyper-specific science research. Yeah. And her sweater keeps changing colors to match the color scheme, which is just, like, a nice little detail. <laughs> yes. Sidebar, the production design of the inside of his parents' house is incredible. Like... Amazing wallpapers. Love really, some patterned wallpaper, which really they good. showcase very, very clearly on the poster because they know on which side their bread is buttered. Yes. But I think what really works about the movie, again, particularly in the first half, they leave the parents' house around like an hour 15, I would say. It's a pretty long movie. It's like two hours and 15 minutes long. They, re- they leave the parents' house a little over halfway through and then it's really downhill from there. But especially in the first half, even as all of these changes are happening, as you say, her personality remains pretty stable and the performance is incredible. Like, I was bowled away by her. She was in this indie film, Wild Rose, last year, which uh, got some critical attention at the end of the year. There was some great original music in it, which people were paying attention to. I thought the film itself was like, fine, not great, but she was the lead character in that and she was so good playing a completely different role than this. Like she's clearly one of the next big things. She's had this really fast breakout. Like she's, she's done, she did a few kind of British historical dramas and stuff. Um, She's Irish, but like in the past couple of years, she's just done a lot of really interesting projects. And she's also done a very wide variety of accents because she was in Chernobyl with like a Yorkshire accent. And then she's been like, she played like Queen Victoria. And so, you know, she can do them all. Yeah. And in this, she sounds kind of like Dakota's E to me, but it's very specific and successful, I think. But I just felt like she was a person and the specific things about her that they're referencing changing are like her job or I mean not that being a poet or being a painter which is one of the other things they say about her are like just superficial nothing things like that's people care deeply about that stuff or indeed about science research but that feels like just sort of external molding on this person who is an actual individual yeah, I mean, in terms of her mannerisms, and the, like, obviously, the vast majority of the film is just her and Jake. So it's kind of the way they play off each other. And sort of she is just like not enjoying his presence to an increasing degree, obviously, as the film progresses. And he like keeps trying to not necessarily impress her, but that kind of conversation you have with like a frustrating man where they just want to talk about some subject they think they're an expert in. And there's this obvious kind of weird tension between them where it's like she does seem like she's more kind of successful or intellectual than him but also she doesn't want to have what seems like just a continual level a continual series of just depressing conversations about like some really needlessly highbrow topic when they're in a really stressful long car journey in the middle of the snow yes and the stuff with his parents is really good they're very weird (laughs) like over the top weird in a way that Clemens and Buckley are not like they're playing pretty naturalistic characters like yeah the and you've got like Tony Collette like fully clowning yes in a great way like somehow it works in a movie because you get this young woman showing up at this house and just being like what the fuck is going on like I, I don't understand where what has happened to me the thing it reminded me the most of in fact <laughs> was mother <laughs> I also thought of mother a yeah. little bit 
Yeah. <laughs> which we hated, as we discussed extensively on this podcast. And obviously in that movie, Jennifer Lawrence is, like, the house is her home, and there are people showing up to it who she doesn't want there, and they're sort of causing chaos. But it felt similar to me in a kind of tonal way in that it's not a horror movie. This is actually but- something I was going to bring up in this film because I found this film very scary. And the book, if you look up the book, it's described as kind of a psychological thriller in a horror movie. This movie I'm not really seeing described as a horror film um, or classified that way. And I absolutely thought this was like a horror fusion film. Although I have more complex thoughts about that structurally that we can talk about at the end. Well, this is the thing. Like, Mother is not really a horror movie either, except that it kind of is. And they both are on this line of like kind of playing with some of the tropes, but not, that's not really the main thing they're doing, I think. And the sense of being in this like really elaborate house and the house seems to have a personality, which obviously is in many, many movies, but the houses are kind of similar. And these like older, very revered actors playing these sort of crazy parent figures. Michelle Pfeiffer is the person I'm thinking of in Mother. And it was just really funny to me because I was like, wow, I hate that movie and I'm really liking this. And yet it's reminding me of it. (laughs) But the dynamic is really interesting because the young woman is just like, I'm so uncomfortable. Like, this is really, really weird. And Jesse Plemons, Jake, is just like, so embarrassed by them. Like, excruciatingly embarrassed by them. And Tony Collette is bragging on and on about how he got, like, medals for, like, diligence in school. He wasn't naturally gifted or brilliant, but, like, she thinks it's so much better that he was just, he just worked so hard. And he's just like... I please stop. Like and you feel bad for him on these dinner scenes because it's just miserable. Like and so they do a really good job of kind of making you understand why he is the way that he is in a way that's both quite Freudian but also like very grotesquely over the top. Like no one actually behaves this way, but you are also like, "Oh, right. Men have these weird complexes because they're expected the parents just have to be like, well, they're the best, but let me like insult you to your face. You have to have like, you know, like marked achievements. Cause it's like this, it's this film basically about this guy who's completely obsessed with, I mean, not superficial achievements, but the idea of having achievements that you can very clearly explain in a sentence, like, oh, my girlfriend is a poet, you know? And with him, like he never talks about what his job is. He doesn't really talk about his interests in an enthusiastic way. It's more like he's just done his homework. So, and it's kind of one of those pieces of art that really points out the difference between like that sense of achievement and actually just being a likable person because like while the girl isn't like an enormously charismatic person she just seems like regular and like you could have a conversation with her whereas this guy you'd be like actively avoiding him because he's just unbearable and that is a solvable problem and it's not a problem you solve by learning a bunch of references yeah and i think the movie doesn't make any explicit sort of textual comments unlike society, right? Until the very end, maybe. But it's clearly preoccupied with these gender questions in a way that I think both those performances and the writing of those two characters and the way they interact with each other are really illuminating because this guy just has nothing. Like, he is just an empty shell of a person and he needs her so much to make himself interesting. But he doesn't actually, like, he's not actually interested in her. He just wants her 
to like validate yeah. and he's him. constantly steamrolling her emotional concerns yes and even like anything she says he has to correct her which is excruciating to watch i mean you're just like oh my god like please please stop and a lot of the time actually the stuff he's saying isn't wrong like he's right about a lot of the stuff where he's like actually no but it's not their time like he has no sense of how to interact with another person at all and she's just like jesus christ like when will this end and i just found that fascinating in the context of Kaufman's other movies because that's just not something he seems to have been interested in from this perspective before like the Clementine character in Eternal Sunshine part of the reason she breaks up with Joel is that she's like you just don't listen to me and like this is it's oppressive being around you all the time you're so depressed whatever but you're seeing it all from his perspective because it's literally inside of his head right like and with this because Jesse Buckley is the main character you're really experiencing it from her point of view. And that oppressive sense of like having to deal with this guy is really effective. And she finds him annoying, but also is like, but he's really nice in her voiceover and will like forgive him immediately every time she thinks that like he's upset about something. And it's done in a pretty subtle way, I think. Like the car scenes that they have are really, really, really long. So you just get this sense of, like, the grind of having a relationship right, like this, right? Like, it just goes on endlessly and endlessly and endlessly, which isn't always, like, enjoyable to watch, but gets the point he's trying to make across really effectively, I think. Yes. <laughs> I should also say, we have mentioned the actors and said they're great. Jesse Plemons is just so good at playing a creep. He started out on Friday Night Lights playing the main character's best friend, and he was, like, such a nice, charming, benign teenage boy. And he has grown up to be an actor who specializes in these fucking <laughs> creepy men. He played an absolute sociopath on Breaking Bad. Like, full-on, I mean, scary guy. And in this, he's just like, ugh. And he seems to be lovely in real life. He oh yeah, he's lovely. He's he's Mr. Kirsten Dunst, yes. which I realize means nothing, but like, you know, like a quiet non-celebrity man who takes a lot of interesting indie roles. But I mean, I think it's like he's he obviously can't be a leading man because like in appearance, he's he he actually is very closely resembles Philip Seymour Hoffman to the extent that when I showed one of my friends the trailer for this film, they were like, "Oh, it's that guy," referring to Philip Seymour Hoffman who is sadly no longer with us and also 30 years older. But um <laughs> Well, he played his son in The Master. As you recall, perhaps. Oh, I've yeah. completely forgotten. Well, yeah. incredible casting there. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he does, he has a very versatile face as well as being a very good actor. I was also thinking kind of, obviously, Jesse is incredibly good <laughs> at playing a creep in this. David Thewlis, also renowned creep actor. Renowned. Incredible. Incredible. <laughs> I was so happy to see him. He, he obviously is working. I just, he's always done the sort of odd stuff. So you don't I saw him, him do an amazing dad role last year. Um, so Billy Piper, who is one of my favorite like celebrities in the entire world, if not my number one, uh, directed, she made her directorial debut last year with this movie called Rare Beasts, which is about this like disastrously awful woman who gets engaged to this terrible man because she's just attracted to the worst possible man she can find. And I assume this is her sort of exercising her experience of being married to an awful Tory. 
um, Billy Piper that is. Um, but the film is it's actually like a really interestingly directed film. I will want to watch her next movie, but I found it so like psychically incomprehensible. I was just like, why would anyone date this man? He's so awful. But well. David Thewlis, please. <laughs> oh, I know exactly. But it was like, it was just aggressively like, what the fuck's happening? However, David Thewlis plays her dad in that. And that is another wonderful, like quite edgy, eccentric dad role in like a different way. And I loved that also in this, he just had a regional English accent for no necessary reason, which I respect as an American filmmaking choice. Yes. <laughs> Have you ever seen Naked? No. You gotta watch it. He is so fucking great in that movie in the most off-putting way imaginable. I mean, it's hard to fathom a more off-putting role, but he is great. This is Mike Lee's film from the early 90s, yeah. which was like a huge deal at the time. I think it's really hard to find on streaming, although maybe that's changed, but um, it's, he, yeah, great actor. It remains incredibly wild that he was cast as Professor Lupin in Harry Potter. Surreal. Even when I was like 12, I was like, this guy has creep energy. And I don't think, I don't think he has creep energy in real life. Absolutely nothing against David Thewlis, about whom I know virtually nothing. But like, even in that, then he, he also often has like a weird little gross moustache. And it's like, why would you cast him as this charming yeah. No, just bizarre. Bad, bad, <laughs> bad, bad, bad. But uh, I think part of what works about him in this movie actually is that he's both very weird and creepy, but also there's harmless. one scene in he's particular. Harmless. Yes, where he's talking to Jesse Buckley. So the parents in the ver- in various scenes in this house when they're visiting, they appear younger and older, and she doesn't really know what's going on. But like time seems to be sort of in flux in this place, and there's a scene where he seems older than she's than he was when he fir- she first met him and he's forgot forgetting things and he seems as you said like quite harmless and it's just sad and he pulls that off completely without any sense of like this person is threatening at all he's i mean he's like strange but you're not concerned exactly it's more that the situation is just bizarre but the fact that he has that slight energy of like not being completely horrible adds to the movie, right? Because the parents aren't bad exactly. They're just completely socially like incapable in every way. And then they've produced this child who is like, oh my God, <laughs> no, 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 no. Which is an interesting dynamic. And again, they're just so over the top. They're slightly unreal. Um, but they both do it really well. Tony Collette, obviously, is great in everything. I mean, yeah. we've discussed Icon. her before. Legend. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, the second half of the movie is less good. Do you agree with that statement? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree, but I also watched this film in two halves for timing reasons. My flatmate and I were just having a conversation between our two halves of the film being like, or after watching the film being like, the first half was better than the second half, but it's hard to tell whether it's like qualitatively or more just that neither of us, but we were both kind of a bit underwhelmed by the ending or I guess maybe disapproving would be a different term. I don't know. Should we talk about, should we weave some spoilers into this discussion of the second half of the film? Yeah, I think it's impossible to talk about without spoiling it. Although this is also a movie that's kind of unspoilable. So, I mean, it is, but also like, that's so not the point that yeah. you know it's, it's really... not a film where it's like let's decode this explanation even though i must say i did spend a lot of time thinking about <laughs> how i could decode the explanation because i was like oh you know is she imaginary etc i mean apparently there is an explanation from the book 
I mean, there is. I yeah, I googled the book and I was like, sure, I'm sure this is like whatever book canon. But in the film, I think it's intentionally very ambiguous. (laughs) Yes, which I found unsatisfying. Not because I wanted there to be like an answer that explained it all. And in fact, throughout the first half and even into the second half, like I was on board as the second half was unfolding. And it was sort of in retrospect, once the end had fallen flat, that I was like, yeah, the second they leave that house, it really starts going off the rails. But for the first chunk, I was like, I kind of like that it doesn't seem like this is going to tie up in a neat way. And one of the things I do appreciate about the movie is that it's clear that something is going on with this woman that's like not quite real in quotes or like that reality is being bended in some way. And indeed, you f- the like interpretation from the book, which does sync up with the movie, is that there's this janitor at this local high school, which I realize if you're listening to this and haven't seen the movie, you must be like, what are they talking about? But there are clips of him throughout the whole film. They, they all of a sudden will cut to like this old janitor at high school and you're like, what's but going I on? But I kind of felt like from pretty early on in the film, it felt quite clear that the janitor was Jake. Yes. Yeah. And the whole thing with Jake and this woman is in the janitor's head. He's like, imagined this. Which becomes a little bit clearer at the end of the movie. Although the end of the movie is just like a bunch of stuff happening. and It's hard to really there's parse. A, there's a dream ballet. Yeah. And uh, some hallucinated cartoons. Yeah. And a nude death. So there's a lot to like perk you up in the final act. <laughs> yeah. And apparently the whole book is structured around like this guy considering killing himself. And he's having this sort of fantasy while he's thinking about doing it. Which I absolutely did not get from the movie at all. In retrospect, I can see how how you could piece that together. But like, I was reading this explainer and was like, well, that did not occur to me. Like, clearly he's not having a great time, but like, all of this is some sort of allegory for like suicidal ideation did not no, occur to me. No, I don't think so. I mean, also kind of the, like the balance of the kind of point of view in the screen time is obviously that the girl whose name keeps changing. It's unfortunate that we can't just refer to it as Jessie because there's two Jessies here, but the girl is the protagonist. And uh, this is kind of what I was talking about in terms of it being a horror movie, because I felt there was a lot of genuinely scary stuff in here. There's also a great deal of tension, obviously both in terms of the conversations they're having are very unnerving and there's a lot of social tension there. And also towards the end of the film, it's more and more kind of stressful because she's trapped in this car. And although it's not the kind of film where you think she's going to have her head bashed in or something, she is trapped in a car with this like increasingly unnerving, creepy guy who won't let her leave. And she wants to go home, but the only way to get home is by him driving her. So that's scary. But also... um, because it's like a female lead and because it's kind of about her being trapped in this unpleasant relationship and she's sort of gradually, or we as the audience are kind of gradually figuring out what's happening. By the time you get to the final act, there's like a very expected way for that to go in like a traditional horror structure, which is that she is the final girl, like she is the girl that survives at the end or she gets like a really exciting death of some kind or the film wraps up in a conventional fashion. And obviously that's not something I'm necessarily expecting from Kaufman, but in terms of like the emotional payoff. I didn't hate the ending, but I kind of felt like suddenly pivoting and being like, oh, it's all about this man after all, was not satisfying to me. Yes. 
And I don't even think, like, that's not what the movie is about. No. Right? No. It's just not. I don't know what his intention was, but the movie that he made is is not about that. So, you know. It's like they kind of blobbed this extra framing device onto the end of a film, which was primarily about, like, toxic relationships and how your upbringing fucks you up. Yes. And so there's a lot of uh, the musical Oklahoma in this movie, which, like, that musical is having quite a moment because <laughs> it was all... Yeah, we the- really should have rewatched Oklahoma in early 2019. <laughs> yeah, I'm so glad I saw it and when it was on Broadway last year because I would not have had any familiarity with it at all. And so watching this, I was like, aha, I see. And the character who he is compared to, the the main guy in this, is the Judd character in Oklahoma, who is like like misogynistic creep, who I think does... I can't remember if he actually like assaults one of the female characters in that show, or if he's just sort of ominously threatening... I mean, he may have been that they had him assault her in the production I saw, which was like, you know, the dark Oklahoma, whatever. But um, he's definitely like the the show's commentary on sort of male sexual aggression in like a bad way. And I found that comparison to be fruitful in this movie. And I was reading stuff online where this sort of, there was like, you know, explaining the end, which... I appreciate the service of the people who are writing this stuff because I certainly needed the comparisons to the book, right? But it felt like they were explaining that, like, well, you know, Judd commits suicide at the end of Oklahoma. Ergo, this is the comparison to this novel where this character is thinking about committing suicide. And I was like, no, the movie is about predatory men being gross to women. Like, that is what the film is about. Like, well, I don't... maybe from our blinkered perspectives as young women, <laughs> we have only interpreted this through the, you know, very clear protagonist who's having a very obvious experience in the film. What can I say? <laughs> and I, I mean, I have no idea what Kaufman would say about the ending, but I think that, you know, I, I, my suspicion is that he's trying to say something about the way men obsess over and fetishize women, right? Which is something that he's talked about before. But I think that he's making a deliberate choice to focus the movie on the woman, right? (laughs) And have her be the focus of the audience's attention. And I was thinking through a lot of this movie, once I kind of figured out at least part of what was going on and that she was not totally real, about other uh, films or books that I've read where there's like a twist at the end and you find out that it was all a dream or something along those lines. And specifically about atonement, I'm going to spoil the end of atonement. So, you know, fast forward 30 seconds, which, you know, you find out at the end of that book that two of the characters who you thought had survived throughout the war and lived long and happy lives actually died much earlier and never sort of found happiness. And the main character of the novel, who's played by Sir Sharonin and other actresses in the film, says to you, like, She's, it's her sister and this other guy who she's been writing about. And she says, like, I wanted to give them the happy ending they didn't have in real life, but does it really matter to you if you read this book and, like, got to the end, like, read that they were happy if I tell you that they're actually dead? And the reaction that you have as a reader, I think it works much less well in the movie, but as a reader, you get to that and you feel completely gutted 
to find out these people are actually dead. But then the novel is deliberately forcing you to have that reaction and then to question it because, of course, they don't actually exist. And you have read this whole story where they get to the end and they, you know, get together and it's happy and it's fine. So, like, does it matter if you've had the experience of of this story that all of a sudden someone at the end is like, by the way, that didn't happen. Like, it's fake. It doesn't matter. And I think this movie, you have had the experience of watching this woman and this amazing performance throughout this film. And the point of the movie, it seems to me, is to give you that experience and to say, like, look at what she's going through and how she's accommodating him, whatever. And so if she's, like, not real, in quotes, at the end, it almost doesn't matter to me, even if I do find that ending frustrating just because it doesn't kind of make sense narratively. Because the whole... Like, what I emotionally got out of the film was watching her and being like, oh, God. <laughs> right? Yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I should also say the one scene that drove me, that really drove me nuts with her was a scene in the car in the second half where they're talking about movies and she starts performing Pauline Kael's review of John Cassavetti's movie, A Woman Under the Influence. I did not know this was Pauline Kael's review until the I internet knew because me. I noticed a copy of a Pauline Kael book in his room and I was like aha now he's reached now, now he's rebooted his girlfriend yet again to be Pauline Kael yeah. <laughs> and there's lots of like textual stuff that he's borrowed from other writers and artists in this movie which is fine but that was the only moment where Buckley felt to me like a distinctly different person like she's speaking with a different accent she's like aggressive in a way that she's not in any other yeah. point in the movie and it goes on for a long time. <laughs> it's a long scene. I mean, she recites that whole poem as well. Yes. That scene was great, though. I liked the poem. There's a poem at the beginning of the movie. Whereas the review bit, I was like, any, if this, if he had had to answer to anyone, any producer, any studio would be like, you gotta lose the review. Like, this I mean, is a little bit the movie is long. It's long, and two thirds of it take place inside a car. Yeah. It's essentially a play. Yeah. But I do think that that's kind of the devil's bargain. I mean, that sounds too negative, but you know what I mean? Of this film, which is that, like, it's too long. It's messy. There's weird stuff that, like, someone who actually edited him would be like, this doesn't make any sense. You should change it. But the stuff that's good about it, I think, is really great and interesting. And he clearly feels like he has to do exactly what he wants to do or else he's like gonna go crazy and people were willing to give him the money to do it and so you kind of just have to be like well i'm just gonna take this as it is and be grateful that there's like weird art in the world right and like it's not like better this than just not having it i guess but that means that you're gonna get some long scenes that really should be cut down because no one can stop him anymore which happens to these artists these white male artists when they hit a certain point and you know no one edits them but this is certainly a better outcome than like Tarantino, who just is like unwatchable at this point to me. Yeah. I mean, definitely something that my flatmate and I were discussing was that um, like kind of the references that are made in this film are, I guess, in some ways quite basic. So like the most obviously basic one is they have this little argument about the song Baby It's Cold Outside, which like literally every single year people have an argument over whether or not the song is about rape. And it's like a very repetitive argument that has become mainstream over the past like five years or something. And there's like several other kind of references in it, like, you know, being like a Pauline Kale obsessive and that sort of thing, where it's like, it feels 
like he has kind of I mean I guess it's like an intentionally sort of dated set of references for this character but also it kind of made me wonder like who is the next like Charlie Kaufman because we're used to seeing this sort of conversation very squarely in like quite a limited sort of I guess Woody Allen would be like another earlier less interesting example but like white guys who are really into this like quite limited view of what it is to be like really smart and highbrow and the things that you are familiar with and the types of conversations you're allowed to have and obviously this film is intentionally about that because the whole movie is about him kind of talking over his girlfriend and really valuing a certain level of intellectual achievement above like being a person but um I'd be interested to see movies that are like this experimental that are kind of from a very different viewpoint to that and I don't think I know which filmmakers that would be at the moment but I'm sure there are many who have slipped my mind um yeah we'd love some recommendations i think this is also i mean this goes back to the point i was just making which is that like you get power and then you're allowed to do this like the fact that i mean adaptation costs like 30 million dollars or something and you watch that movie and you're just like i do not understand how this happened like if that movie were being made today it would be made for like 2.5 million dollars on like you know, in one apartment. Um, I mean, it wouldn't happen today. There's no way that movie would be made today. It would not ever occur. So the fact that he's had, he's had a huge level of success from pretty early on in a way that is pretty wild, but he's just, he's a genius. Like it, you know, that's, that's true. We can, we can give him that. But then what happens is you have a certain level of success in Hollywood for long enough. And I'm sure he worked incredibly hard to get this movie funded because it's hard even for those people to get these weird projects made. But it's, it helps if you're Charlie Kaufman, right? Like that's a plus. Whereas if you are someone our age, who's not as prominent, but is brilliant and has all these cultural references at your fingertips, like Netflix is not going to be as immediately interested in funding your like bizarro experimental film, right? Like, it's just not as likely to happen. I'm sure there is stuff that, again, we're just not thinking of off the top of our heads that has been sort of strange and odd recently. But um, his level of sort of writerly experimentation is pretty unusual to him and also has been enabled by his past successes. Like, he has been nominated for so many Oscars. But I mean, next year, Morgan we can look forward to him, his his next movie, which is that he has a technical, he technically has a co-writing credit on the often delayed Chaos Walking movie starring Tom Holland and Daisy Ridley. Great. <laughs> a film which they may or may not have had to just refilm the whole movie because it was so bad they couldn't show it. So um, I'm intrigued. Yeah. As a final note, we we must talk briefly about the fake film in the oh middle my god. of this oh movie. Oh my god, so good. So good. Great fit. I love... God, the thing is, I love a fake movie. I mean, the pinnacle of fake TV is The Good Wife, like all of the fake TV shows you see in The Good Wife. And this had a really tremendous fake movie in it. That was exactly what I thought of. Yes. <laughs> I also watched... I watched the uh, movie Alison Brie wrote, co-wrote and starred in Horse Girl the other day, which is also on Netflix, which is like pretty good. And she's obsessed with a show on that called Purgatory, which is like a crime show that's clearly on CBS that's about like (laughs) demon hunters. And they got Robin Tunney and Matthew Gray Goobler to be in the fake show in it's, I mean, 
amazing, amazing, amazing. It is so, I mean, it was the best thing about the movie. And I liked the movie. I didn't love it. But, like, it was just perfect. But this, so there's this, like, fake romantic comedy. They're showing the very end. And, like, this guy shows up to this girl's work. She's a waitress. And, like, professes his love to her in an incredibly obnoxious and intrusive way and gets her fired. But, of course, she's like, (laughs) but you love me? I mean, horrible. In a very aware way about sort of, like, the bad tropes in romantic comedies. And then it, like, fades to black, and it shows up that it is directed by Robert Zemeckis. (laughs) I have not laughed so hard in quarantine. I was, like, I my neighbors could have heard me. I was absolutely... Just like braying with laughter. We, of course, the Robert Zemeckis movie literally last week. I mean, the timing, just chef's kiss. I don't Do even... you know the story behind this? No, please tell me. So, in the script, he just put down Robert Zemeckis' name as like a random name for the director to put at the end of it. And then they were like, Should we just ask if we can use Robert Zemeckis' name? And he was like, Fine. Because <laughs> it doesn't seem like a Robert Zemeckis movie. It doesn't at all. It doesn't. <laughs> Robert Zemeckis doesn't make that kind of movie exactly, but he makes very cheesy movies. And something about the, like, oh, yeah, and we're going to put this real person's name in this film. I was absolutely beside myself. Oh, wait, actually, I tell a lie, apparently, because I was just double-checking to see this. Okay, so actually, from the Netflix official Twitter account, they say Kaufman did not write a name in the script, so the assistant editor used the end credit from Contact as a placeholder. Kaufman then saw it, burst out laughing, and asked Zemeckis his permission to keep it, which is even better. I mean, good for Robert Zemeckis for being up for it, you know? I thank that editor for bringing me that moment of joy in this dark time, because, oh my god. I think I think that just about wraps that up. And while I'm not sure how big of an audience this part this episode has, we're still going to plug next week's episode, which is going to be huge and massive, a fireworks display of a podcast. Because next week we are finally doing Lord of the Rings, an abrupt left turn into a very <laughs> different type of movie. Uh, <laughs> we will, of course, be doing a regular episode. We will also be doing an audio commentary track, which will be available on Patreon to our Patreon subscribers if you pay $3 or more. And uh, yeah, you can watch the movie with us. I am so looking forward to seeing this movie for the first time in approximately 15 years. Um, between 10 and 15 anyway. God, it's going to be good. Yeah, I have seen this one five or six years ago, I think. The other two, it's been a long time. Museum of Modern Art showed this movie at their Kate Blanchett retrospective, which I respect. And I oh, went. God, yeah. <laughs> And the thing is also, when they do that sort of thing, usually it's like, oh, we need to pick a fun one. It's like, she's done a lot of fun ones. Yeah. (laughs) So. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, We love her. We'll be talking about her at length. I think there also was at the end of that uh, print, like a trailer for the second one that was like incredibly cheesy and bad. And I was just like, (laughs) early 2000s trailer. (laughs) Love it. This is really, I mean, the apex of overinvested. What work of art? have we been more overinvested in besides, you know, Captain America, the Winter Soldier. And that lasted for like a year. Whereas this obsession for me personally was longer. So. (laughs) Yeah. And the effects lasted a lifetime because as you know, our formative years are between the ages of like 11 and 14. And that was when Lord of the Rings came out. So. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, well, obviously. I don't even care about Lord of the Rings anymore, but God, I care a lot about Lord of the Rings. (laughs) Precisely. Yeah. I mean, 
we'll be getting into this like next week, but I'm not one of those people who's like continually, you know, reading the Silmarillion or whatever. I haven't read the books no. since I was in college, but um, I could just recite facts to you. Like <laughs> I just know stuff. I know all the names of everybody. Like I mean, it's it too was much. the it was the golden age of DVD special features, which oh. unfortunately have died to death, and they're great. DVD special features were an incredible time for everyone. Yeah. I mean, also, they were all, like, trapped in New Zealand with each other for years. So they... Yeah, of course. <laughs> like, it was it, the sort of melding of perfect, the perfect storm. But uh, we have so many hours to talk about all of that because we're doing all three of them. So get ready, people. But number one will be next week, and then we'll do the following two in the successive months. So on our Patreon... At the moment, we have a mini-sode, I mean, we say mini-sode, it's technically shorter, but it's like a half an hour long, so, you know, about um, Steven Spielberg's film Minority Report, which is a science fiction movie that came out in 2002, which was very fun to talk about. Great and weird movie starring Tom Cruise, whom we love to discuss, a famously bizarre man. Gabia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my work on The Daily Dot, and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And I am on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverInvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverInvestedPodcast, and our website is OverInvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye. Bye. <laughs>